Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Countercurrents Radio Live. My name is Box Populi, and once again, I am sitting in as the guest host. My guest tonight, or today, or this afternoon, wherever you are in the world, is Endeavor. So let's bring him on. Hello, Endeavor. Hi, thanks for having me on again. Yeah, it's good to talk. Uh, we've only spoken to each other now on three occasions, including this. Uh, once I went on your YouTube channel for a live stream chat. I think that was about over a year ago. About a year ago, And then ago, we, yeah. we, we didn't really, you know, interact too much. I think we've chatted, you know, every now and again, you know, on like Telegram, things like that. But we didn't really speak together on a stream until a few weeks ago when you came on to an episode of this with American Krogan. And... Um, I just thought that we had a really good conversation and there was some other stuff that we could delve into that we mentioned in that uh, stream. We talked about, you know, living in someone else's mythos. We talked about um, the, the, the perfidious influence of Freud, Sigmund Freud on psychology as we understand it today. And then as the weeks passed, so much more stuff happened. <laughs> so I figured what we do is sort of like a roundup of uh, some of the things that happened, you know, in in our neck of the woods in Europe, in the United States, and then we can also tie it into some of the other themes that we uh, that we spoke about last time. But before that, um, how have you been? Give us a little bit of uh, an update on how things are on your end. Uh, things have been going well. I've been blogging on Substack of the over the last couple of months, and. I'm quite happy with the platform, so I encourage people to uh, f to follow me there for most of my content. And then I've also been turning some of those blog posts into videos on my YouTube channel. And then I still do my monthly class classic movie stream, which Morgoth and I do. One month is on his channel, the next month is on mine. So that's pretty much what I've been up to this past year or so. Yeah, your subtech is is worth reading, definitely. And we were talking about this before we went live. Uh, how I think it's great that more and more of us are are taking to writing. I actually never used to be really into making videos, to be honest. I, it was kind of a chore. And I quite like being able to express myself writing as opposed to making videos. And what's nice about people having a sub stack or, or even maintaining their own website, their own blog, although this, the, the nice thing about sub stack is that it's done for you. You don't have to you know, pay to maintain a website or a domain name. And the nice thing is, is that when you share a video to someone, you really never know if they're actually going to watch it. And if it's, especially if it's a long video and, you know, in the case of my videos, they weren't very good for, you know, quick sound bites. <laughs> I, I gave these kind of long presentations. And so they really weren't great for you know, sending that, that little clip that can go viral or something like that. And so if you send someone, an hour long or 90 minute long video and say, here, check this out. You don't know if they're going to actually watch it. Likely they won't. But if you've written something or if you share something that's been written, that can linger. They can, they can go back to it. They can read it, you know, and then come back to it and finish it later. You can even, you know, screenshot some of the text, uh, some of the paragraphs and share those that get right to the point. And so I think it's great that more of us are, are turning to the written word or the typed word, as it were. So I think that's great. I mean, for me personally, I still am a video guy. I do prefer the video format. I, I am a bit sad that the video essay is kind of becoming a lost art in our sphere. I remember about 
four or five years ago when I started, when I got into all this, that was the standard format. It was the, the video essay. Yeah. And that, that, that's the, that's still the format I, I enjoy the most. But what I do like about Substack is that, as you mentioned, a, to make an edited video takes a lot of work to record your voice, to edit your voice, to make visuals. It's, it's a big task. So what I, what I am liking about Substack is that I can write about something that I don't want to go through the effort of, of spending several weeks making a video about, but I can just uh, get it in written format and have my take on whatever it is out there without having to, you know, put in this huge amount of effort just to, just to, just to get it out there because there'll be a lot of things that, you know, either it's not, uh, it's just kind of in the news in the, in the here and now and a couple mm-hmm. weeks from now when I've, when I've made a video about it, it won't, it won't be in the news anymore. That's what I like the, the written format about. It's just something mm-hmm. or it's something I just, I don't feel like putting all that, I, I don't feel like putting that much effort into uh, making a video on it. Substack's a good way that I can just get my takes out there. You know, it's funny you say that because for me making the videos, I, I never did you know much editing or anything like that. So for me, the video just took up a lot of time because I would basically just sort of make a, a blueprint of the notes that I wanted to say, you know, make some notes about the things I was going to make my presentation on and then just sort of open the webcam and give a presentation live and then record it and then upload it. And so, yeah, I mean, it would, I didn't do that many takes or that many edits. I mean, that was the worst part is that if I made a mistake, I'd have to start all over again. <laughs> if I was already an hour <laughs> in, you know, it was like, well, just got to keep going on, you know, further up and further on. <laughs> it's too late to go back now. So with the videos, I was actually not putting too much like technical work into them. Whereas with the stuff I write, I'll spend weeks, you know, planning it and writing it and then editing it and proofreading it. So in, 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 an, in an odd way, I actually am putting more into the Substack <laughs> into my, or whatever <laughs> I write than I am into the old videos I used to make. So yeah, I think but it's just a it, kind of office it, talk, though. Yeah, it's like I, I think it it depends on people's different mentalities how they approach their you know their work. There are some people who are really good with video editing and and all that kind of stuff. They make you know really fantastic uh, videos. And there's other people who are probably just a bit more. I think in, in my case, I just want to get the ideas out, and you know maybe I don't have that much of a technical skill <laughs> doing it with the video platforms. Well, I'm really thankful the countercurrents because. They've already shared one of my uh, uh, Substack essays and they're going to be republishing my new one soon. So I do like that kind of, you know, when I started with YouTube, you'd have people share, share your videos around and now I'm, you know, starting to get sharing around the essays. So, but anyway, not to to make this a stream about uh, content creation, because I know it's not something that I guess not uh, so interesting for the audience, but anyway. Well, a little look behind the curtain, I guess, to see what goes on to give up, get all this stuff out there. But let's get started then with the the themes for tonight. So the first thing we'll speak about, just because given who we are as nationalists and as people who care about European peoples, um, whether it's diaspora or still here on the continent, there's really no getting around uh, what has been quite another momentous week uh, regarding, you know, great replacement, migrant invasion, And once again, it's happening on this little Italian island called Lampedusa. So I guess um, I'll set up the stage about all that's been happening, and then we'll we'll get into some of the details of it. But I'm sure most of uh, the audience knows as well that um, last week, over the space of 
just a few days, over 10,000 the last time I checked, the last time I checked the, the official number. Because again, it's difficult to actually know. But according to reports, well over 10,000 African, mostly men, came on a fleet of boats <laughs> to Lampedusa uh, coming up from North Africa. And, um, you know, the, the mobile phone video recordings, footage of it, it, it looked like an invasion. It looked like, you know, a naval invasion. It looked like a fleet, you know, coming up on the beaches of Troy or the beaches of Normandy. It's just incredible. And um, in one day, I believe that about 3,000 arrived in just one day. And then another 3,000 and then another 1,000. And then eventually within just a couple of days, it was well over 10,000 people from Africa uh, showing up on this island. And the native population, the, the Italian population of Lampedusa is only 6,000. So <laughs> in, in just a matter of days, they were not only you know, equaled by migrant, quote unquote migrants, but actually surpassed by the number of migrants. Just incredibly shocking. This is record-breaking. I think that's why, even though this, this matter is years and years old, and it's so old that some people even think it's a bit passe or lowbrow to even keep talking about this, but you know, it's, an, it's another example of how you know, all these things can be happening around us, but at the end of the day, the boats literally don't stop coming. And for me, there's nothing more important than this issue of replacement migration. I think it's everything else is downstream from it, as I spoke about with Morgoth a few weeks ago as well on another counter countercurrent stream. Go ahead. Well, no, I was going to say the same thing. It's like it's it's obviously, I think, the most pressing issue that we face right now. But, um, you know, I mean, uh, we've been not we've been facing this for the last, well, several decades, to be honest. But. Uh, this whole like issue of migration, like it was a big thing in 2015 and it was this, this huge media circus back then. It was a lot of propaganda back then, but what people might not realize is that it never stopped. And in fact, I'm pretty sure there's actually, the numbers are actually higher now than it was back then. But, yes. Uh, you know, so under, that, under the, the far right, the, the neo-fascist far right government of Fratelli d'Italia yeah, Giorgio Maloney. Italy's furthest right <laughs> government since Mussolini, as the media yes, reminded me. as we've been told, yes. Again. Well, the numbers of migrant arrivals have actually surpassed the previous year. In, in August, so just last month, Italy broke the record of last year's migrant arrivals, and that was under the Partito Democratico, the sort of centrist, center-left, in name, but clearly they are extremist left that was under their their watch so under the quote-unquote right-wing party the invasion has increased and in august so in eight months of so-called right-wing leadership in eight months the migrant arrival surpassed an entire 12 months of the uh, centrist partito democratico so it's not looking good um as far as that goes and so that's that's the situation and like you said this has been going on for decades i remember when I was a, a, you know, a, a teenager, this was going on in, in Italy still, but not to the extent like this. You know, these, these fleet of NGO boats, these fleet of rubber dinghies full of African men just rocking up to your beaches uh, and then you know, eventually getting dispersed throughout your cities. So the optics of this are rather interesting, and you had some thoughts on that, so I'll hand it to you. 
Well, yeah, I mean, like I said, the Lampondusa uh, situation isn't really anything new because, as we all know, this has been going on for a long time now. I think it was more the optics of what was going on that was different about this situation because you see these images of the of these huge crowds of sub-Saharan African men packed into this like small area where they have these tents, but then uh, like these like uh, I don't know what you call them those those tents that you would have uh, at like an outdoor event or something like that, not one for sleeping in, but like they have these big tents, like, but then you like see a that pavilion. Yeah, like a pavilion. And but then you see that the crowd like exceeds all of these pavilions and they're just kind of like yeah. sticking up in the crowd. Uh, and then you see them like hopping over walls and throwing mm-hmm. stuff. And it's just like the sheer number that that's that's there in that small, tiny little piece of uh, land being that island. You know, I, I there, there's no way that they can sell this as being in any way, shape or form beneficial for Europe, because I mean, I don't like in their in your in their heart of hearts. I don't think anyone, no matter how no matter how liberal they are, actually believes that there are a bunch of neuroscientists and engineers in that crowd who are going to uh, design the the future of the fourth industrial revolution or whatever they call it. It's basically just uh, the the situation. The optics of the situation basically just looks like, uh, well, NGOs are facilitating an invasion of Europe. And the Italian government is permitting it, and uh, they're pretty much just intent on destroying Europe. That's that, I mean, that, that's that's the optics of the situation because I, I, Morgoth was talking about this uh, the other day as well, and what he said was that you know it's it's being confronted by the biomass without the media spin, without them like having all of the you know the people of flat diversity propaganda, without the advertisements where it's the black family in the like pristine neighborhood mm-hmm. without any of that mm-hmm. stuff. It's just this huge mass of sub-Saharan African men in this really small piece of land. And it just basically looks like you're being invaded by this horde, which because that's what it is. It's the optics of the situation that is different this time. And well, I, I don't know. I mean, it just, it just for, for me comes across as they, it just comes across as malicious. Whereas in, you know, 2015, mm-hmm. We know we know well that that was malicious as well. But there was this massive campaign to uh, you know tug on the heartstrings of people mm-hmm. and to talk about you know uh, about, uh, what were they talking about? Uh, people fleeing from the Middle East and people mm-hmm. uh, coming to enrich and how our diversity is so great and you know and those bigots like Donald Trump don't understand the what makes uh, our uh, these our diverse society. But like this stuff. It, uh, uh, the current situation is completely devoid of all that. It's basically just a mass of third world men crowding into <laughs> into Europe. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting you mentioned the uh, you know the fourth industrial revolution. So it seems like the uh, arrivals have been turned up to eleven, and there's not even an attempt to disguise it under you know the veneer of oh, they're desperate refugees and it's our duty to take them in and, and rescue them. There is still some of that. And many you know, sort of shit-lib normie types will still profess that, that belief, that, that thought that's not their own, but that's been planted in their head by, by the media regime. But what's interesting is that, so if the immigration has been turned up to 11 and if the mask has fallen off and it's just basically here, take in nearly two times your local population in about three days 
of African men and just deal with it. What I find interesting about this is that you know, the people who are at the controls, the ruling class, how much are they even aware of what they are doing or what the consequences are? Because if they want to implement this fourth industrial revolution, and at the same time, import people who have never really been able to create or maintain first world civilization, and they want to bring them, and apparently uh, there is no limit to the number that they're prepared to let in. So how do they square this? What's going on here? Is it that there really isn't that much of a, of a united, connected, interwoven uh, plan behind it all? Or is, is, or is it just that they're really actually not that competent? What's going on here? Well, I mean, actually, that this is uh, the topic of an upcoming blog post that, slash video that I have in the works. You know, I've spent many years trying to like square uh, these ideas. So, you know, when I got into all this stuff, I was focused on issues like immigration, Islam more so back then. I kind of think that's a bit more trivial now. And then I eventually got into issues like the Jewish question and like race realism and things like that. But then, you know, with with COVID, uh, we started to we started to talk about things like technocracy and what what they call the fourth industrial revolution. And then all of this squares in with the climate change agenda. So I've spent a lot of time like trying to figure out, like, how does the, all this stuff fit in? And I, I've also I, I have started to consider, like, maybe it just doesn't make sense. And their plan really isn't that well thought out, because like when you look at something like the wef videos uh like the you know the glossy videos with the xylophone music with like the mixed race couples and everyone is just like like overly happy and it looks like this jetson's future or something like that how the hell are they going to do that when they're letting in it seems like this unlimited mass from the third world because you know if somebody if they have this vision of the future where you're going to be using your digital id and signing in when you using facial recognition to get into the store and and, and all of, and all this like tech technology up the yin yang i mean how's that going to work when you when, with these masses from the third world who have an average iq in in the 70s i, mm -hmm. I don't know how i really don't know how that's going to work all the infrastructure that is going to be required to pull off agenda 2030 which they talk about ad nauseum you know every single mm -hmm. time they have one of these meetings at the UN, at Davos, one of these COPT meetings, it's it's always this uh, this Agenda 2030, Sustainable Development Goals, and all of this uh, technology is a massive part of this. But how how do they square it with the migrants that they're bringing in from the third world? But I don't think that you can just say that like one of these is inconsequential, or that one of these is that, that this is a separate agenda because it's clearly the same people who are intent on both of these like th that uh, th mm -hmm. this migration seems like it's absolutely part of whatever it is that they're wh whatever it is they think they are going to achieve by 2030 you know i mean w one of the answers i've come to is that maybe it's because they are their their intention is to reduce the standard of living of people in the west and that by and they can do that by importing people who are used to a lower standard of living maybe it's just ethnic uh, hostility towards people of European descent, but, or it could just be that they're mad and they really haven't thought it through. It's, it's, it's a hard question <laughs> to answer. It's, it's something that I, I really haven't been able to, I haven't really been able to come to a solid conclusion on it because it makes no sense. My, my theory 
observing, you know, what I, what I see going on and based on what I think I know about, you know, these people, I, I think that they want to elevate humanity and they see humanity as just all the same with equal potential and equal characteristics and equal capabilities. And I think that their idea involving, you know, transhumanism, the, the fusion of the biological with the technological, as, uh, you know, old Schwabi has said many times, I think that they have this messianic vision that they have this, this God complex where they want to elevate humanity to this new plane. And in order to do that, they want to eliminate any sort of, you know, backwards thinking like tribal identity, racial identity, national identity. So they need to do away with that. That requires mixing everybody together to the point that nations are no longer relevant. And racial identity is really actually hard to come by because everyone's going to be mixed up and sort of deracinated, literally deracinated. And so as any, you know, mixed race person can attest, anyone at least that's honest with themselves, you know, there is a there is a bit of a difficulty when you are mixed race to know exactly, you know, who are you and where do you come from and what what do you identify with? I mean, I'm mixed ethnicity. I'm I'm, you know, two or three parts of a different European ethnicities. And it's even if I'm being honest with myself at times, you know, I try I'm honest with myself all the time. But yeah, there are times where I really have to think about, you know, well, to be two quite quite distinct European nations as well. It 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 is rather difficult at times. It's not as straightforward as just being, you know, I'm 100% English or I'm 100% uh, Swedish. And so I can put myself in the shoes of someone who's mixed race and then it gets even more complicated. And so, you know, you're going to have these, the, the global citizen is the ideal they want, the global citizen. And then also, I think that they suspect, they are aware of race in a, in a certain way. And I think they do suspect that when third world peoples mix with white people, for them, for those third world peoples, it'll be an upgrade. And for the white peoples, it'll be a bit of a downgrade. And so it kind of like it's a, it's a, it's a checks and balance system. And so everyone is going to be sort of mixed together, have no, you know, stupid tribal identities, none of that stupid petty nationalism, petty na nation identities, none of that, all that's done away with. We're all going to be global citizens. And also the, the global South, I suppose you could call it, will sort of have an upgrade. And then, like you mentioned, you know, lowering uh, quality of life standards. Well, that will be kind of the downgrade that, you know, the European peoples go through. And then, you know, soon enough, it'll be the Japanese turn and the Koreans turn. And so that's how I square what's going on here. But there's this, still this little problem with their, their utopian society does seem very technological and, you know, with robots and AI. And I've spoken to people who have, you know, firsthand experience living amongst third world peoples in, you know, what is called the third world. And they struggle to use a cash machine, an ATM. So, you know, it's worth asking, well, how do they expect these populations to adapt, you know, transhumanism and the fusion of the biological with the technological and, you know, a QR code and all this stuff scanned everywhere. Um, it is it is very strange in that in that sense. 
Well, I, I know that you read the article, The Competency Crisis, that uh, this one, it was titled, I think, Complex Systems Won't Survive the Competence Crisis. I can't remember the author's name, but it was written a couple of months ago, and it was it was quite groundbreaking. I, th I, I suggest everybody read that article. And the, the gist of it is that uh, it was focused on the United States, but it's definitely applicable to Europe and pretty much any white country at this point. The gist of the article was that because of affirmative action, uh, specifically because of affirmative action, I think there could be other things involved there too, but uh, this in particular, what's happening is that incompetent people are being elevated to positions of authority rather than competent people. There's a great line from the article which says, uh, in reference to the, the United States, it says that whenever, whenever diversity and competency come into conflict with each other, the message has been clear that diversity must take priority. In other words, whenever, whenever there's a question between hiring the most competent person or hiring the most non-white person or the gayest person, it's always the latter. The trend over the last couple of decades has been that they will always hire the less competent but more quote-unquote diverse person. And the point that this article makes, first of all, is that this is baked into American law and has been for decades. The, the, the article uh, goes through how the Civil Rights Act basically makes th this kind of phenomenon of prioritizing quote-unquote diversity over competency, that this is law in the United States. It is mandated by law, lest you face massive fines or lawsuits and uh, all, all, this hor all this horrible stuff. So, um, and then th these laws have now been uh, implemented in other countries too. Like in the UK, they have something called the Equalities Act. In mm -hmm. Canada, they have they have a, an equivalent of this. And slowly but surely, these policies are being implemented throughout the white world, being increased to a, to a, a higher level. And then you also have to consider the fact that as the demographics shift, these policies are going to have a much greater impact. Because let's say that you know you have these policies, but the country is like you know ninety five percent white. Well, then your workforce is still going to be 95% white. But that now when you have this demographic shift, then you're going to have an, a much higher number of people in who are not, not competent because they've been elevated for reasons other than competence in these positions who are going to be, who they're not going to be able to run these systems. And, and he goes through things like, what was it? Air, air traffic control, mm -hmm. that how a campaign to make air traffic control more diverse, as they call it, meaning less white, in America mm -hmm. has had an impact on aircraft safety through in the United States. And there was that, mm -hmm. there was this example, but then you can all, there are plenty of other examples where this is also applicable that, but when you think of this kind of vision for the future, this agenda 2030 fourth, fourth industrial revolution, technocratic vision, it just seems like, uh, well, the technology that they need to do it, it maybe it's just coming into existence now. But it, it seems like it seems like quite a stretch because there's still a lot that needs to be done technologically mm -hmm. to make a lot of the things they want to, to implement even possible. But then when you consider that they're not hiring people based on merit, but based on, well, they're 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 ticking these boxes in this kind of Marxian uh, oppression dialectic. Well, how are you going to how are you going to be able to design, implement and run the infrastructure of some kind of technocratic society like this, I don't think you're going to be able to do it. And it is just this glaring contradiction. Do they actually have this like brilliant scheme, which 
you know, they're going to ch shift the demographics because it's going to give them this much more control. I mean, maybe some have thought about that, but I think a lot of it, I'm sorry, I, I, in the past year, I've started to think a lot that a lot of it kind of is just delusion, really. Yeah, there's there's definitely a bit of that. It, it's hard to see exactly what, because the two things are just so diametrically opposed. You know, you want to have this techno-futuristic society that, you know, with AI and robots and, and transhumanism, you know, you want to create cyborgs, basically. And that requires, you know, quite a, a, an adept and high IQ population. While at the same time, you want to, you know, empty the African continent, basically, <laughs> and deposit it in, in Europe or in, in the United States. Um, so it's, it's definitely a you know, head scratcher. Now, something that's interesting about this is also to think about, you know, the, the malevolent element behind it and, and the, um, the sort of opportunistic Machiavellian political machinations. Now, I recently was um, redirected. I, I read a Substack article. I, I forgot who wrote it, but um, it was about this old video that Philosophy Tube made. I think that's that's the name of. Uh, oh God. Yeah, uh, uh, Oliver <laughs> what used to be his name. Now it's not. <laughs> but he made this video back a, a long time ago, and it was called Why the Left Will Win. And in it, one of, his, um, one of his theories was that the left is comprised of these communities of vulnerability. And the, the right tries to form these communities of strength. But what we're seeing is that being vulnerable actually is more of a strength than being strong. And so for the left, it's a winning strategy to have different communities all coming together in this community of vulnerability. It's how we've had the phenomenon of the oppression Olympics and, you know, but it's also how you have this permanent revolution. It's why they can always say, we still have so much work to do because there's always going to be someone vulnerable. There's always going to be someone who needs to be taken in and the community of the vulnerable, which is the modern left, will take them in. And it's that way that they keep uh, increasing their numbers and increasing their influence and increasing their networking abilities and planting one another in positions of influence and power. Whereas, you know, the traditional sort of conservative mindset or the right is focusing on being strong and, uh, you know, being independent and making something of yourself and, and all that kind of thing. And I, I do think that just on a broader level i mean we are living in a sort of age where everything is inverted and so the the vulnerable the the oppressed the, the people who are claiming victimhood status status that is you know worth more being able to claim some sort of victimhood uh, status is worth more than actually being strong being capable um self-sufficient all of those qualities have actually become rather depreciated and so that might be what might be going on here is that there's there's not as much of a connect a connection that we sometimes think there is between these various ruling class figures. And so there might be some who want to implement the fourth industrial revolution and, and they want to make headway on that. And then, you know, very close to them, they go to the same cocktail parties. They go to the same lavish events. You know, like we just, I just saw a video of this very lavish, you know, let them eat cake, literally 
gala dinner in a French palace with Macron and for some reason, Hugh Grant and Arsene Wenger were there as well, and Mick Jagger, and they're all, you know, dressed to the nines and having this lovely meal in a French palace. And so they're all, you know, they all hang out together. But while some of them are more interested in this fourth industrial revolution thing, there's others that are more concerned about, you know, diversity, and they are concerned about diversity because they see it as a way of bolstering this community of the vulnerable that will form this massive block that basically guarantees them votes and elections and influence and power throughout the rest of the culture. So that might be why these two things are happening at the same time. I don't know what you think about that. Well, first thing, I just want to add that I, I have to say that uh, communities of vulnerability is probably the gayest phrase ever uttered in, in all humanity. Will I get in trouble if I, am I dead naming or dead gendering? If, if I we're, on, we're, on, anyway. we're, we're not on YouTube, so no. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, um, they're his words, not mine. <laughs> well, the phrase we have for this is bio-Leninism. That basically what bio-Leninism yes. bio is, it's taking the idea, uh, some of the ideas that Vladimir Lenin used during the Russian Revolution, that if, if you've studied the history of it, you'll know the Russian Revolution was not very Russian at all. Like a huge portion of the Bolshevik party uh, just after the revolution was Jewish. But then they also allied with other, they also put other ethnic minorities in positions of power like Poles, uh, Armenians. Uh, Latvians maybe. And then you also, they also kind of like included like these weird sexual degenerates. They had, uh, they had like some like, you know, weird cat ladies involved in this, like, you know, these uh, psychotic women or, you know, maybe uh, atheists or something like that. And they, they kind of created this big coalition, which you can look into the, like the, into the later history of the Soviet period to see how that kind of fell apart. But th this was basically the, the Bolsheviks uh, route to power was to basically get anybody who had some kind of grievance against czarist Russia and put that and like so this is like a person who has a chip on their shoulder in some way a reason that they don't like well they don't like the czarist regime and also they don't like ethnic Russians just in general and to put them into positions of power because they're going to be fiercely loyal to the power structure now there was also the aspect of class because Back in in earlier days and uh, the earlier iterations of the left, class was a lot more important. So it was also things like pushing out the former aristocracy and elevating people who were economically poorer to positions of power. This was the the, the kind of a strategy that one of the strategies that Vladimir Lenin used. Like I, I saw this one graph from a few years ago tracking the uh, the ethnic composition of the NKVD, which was the uh, the secret police under Stalin the precursor to the KGB. And it showed that before the mid, the, before the mid 1930s, the uh, NKVD was uh, about 40% Jewish, then a huge number, a lot of Poles, a lot of Latvians, mm -hmm. a lot of Armenians, and very few Russians, Belarusians, or Ukrainians in the NKVD. But then eventually they, they eventually did actually take over that organization. But what bio-Leninism means is that it's biological, it's this, but biological. So it's taking those who other, who couldn't really compete in a in a free market so th those who couldn't really compete those who would not be successful in a traditionally white society that being obviously africans other migrants uh then like you know homosexuals they might be like successful in a in a uh, economic sense but you know in a social sense they're kind of they're kind of outcasts they're kind of not really somebody who fits in there and then you know with 
with Jews, it's not necessarily that they're not competent, but it's that they they have this like ethnic grievance against white people because of perceived historical because of perceived mm-hmm. historical wrongs, which you know are mostly or even because of religious instruction and yeah. cultural instruction to it's, be that way. So <laughs> There's lots of explanations. Free. I think what philosophy tube was suggest was describing is basically what we were what we would call in the right bio leninism it's a mm-hmm. coalition of everyone who has some kind of grievance against traditional white society and you know put an elevating them above the above those who benefited from traditional white society that being the the, the white the well basically just white people at, at this point and elevating i think them that's to, it. I, I do think that's it i yeah. think and then you know the 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 weird but, spanner in the works is just this whole recent obsession with you know agenda 2030 and and the fourth industrial illusion i think that's an added element and they think they can make both work well yeah uh, but here's the, i'm not sure i think and i think one of them is going to have to give i think so too because you know um one of the problems is that with bio leninism what what it gives you it, what it gives the left is people who are fiercely loyal to the power structure but it doesn't give them competence, though, because these people like they are elevating people who don't create a stable society. And what's going to end up, you know, they're not going to be able to implement all of this, all of this technocratic stuff that they want to with this kind of with this kind of scheme that they have going on. It gives them a lot of power, but it doesn't at all run society very effectively. Uh, it, it, I mean, to, to, to draw another to draw other comparisons with the Soviet Union, it is also true that Later in the Soviet period, uh, eventually ethnic Russians got back into positions of power in, within the Soviet Union. So this kind of like what, you, what you'll see is that uh, later Soviet governments were a lot more Russian and a lot less Jewish and a lot less, you know, involving all these other groups that they, they had because eventually they had to run. They eventually had to run the country. I'm not I'm not trying to make excuses for the Soviet Union. Obviously, I'm not a huge fan of it, but it, if we want to look at that as an example, eventually they did have to say, okay, well, you know, all this like revolutionary mumbo jumbo, we eventually have to actually run a stable society. Hmm. And again, not, not saying that I'm certainly not a fan of Joseph Stalin by any stretch, but he did roll back a lot of the insanity from the early Russian revolution. One thing that, that's worth noting is that like the Bolsheviks promoted things like homosexuality and they attacked the family and they did all this, like a lot of this, a lot, very similar stuff to what we see in the West today. Uh, Stalin basically scrapped all of that stuff and just got rid of it all and and brought uh and and brought oh, yeah, it back what, to um we have the, the, the meme the, the meme of like you know the the soy soy boy or the reddit type you know and he's saying but i i wanted to be the the ministry of you know furries or something and then the soviet soldier is saying very interesting dig faster or, or put your back <laughs> up against the wall you know it's like yeah it's, well, you're, not, you're not gonna have your and again, I need ahead, to stress that th- th- this isn't to try to make excuses for Stalin or to say that he was no, of course not. A good, a good I don't leader. think anyone would. It was horrible, but um, uh, the point is that this kind of like strategy, this uh, you know, bio Leninism, the community of the losers, uh, it it doesn't last very long, and it, and it doesn't really build a stable society. Which is why I don't think that this is going to work. If if what their goal is is this kind of like technocratic, this like technocratic society, because. You know, the uh, going back to the competency crisis, they don't mm-hmm. the, 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 the policies that they have in place, the laws they have in place make it such that they're not going to be able to they're not going to be able to implement this stuff. And all of this uh, talk of, you know, the competency crisis or the 
collapse of a functioning society and things like that. And, you know, how this is a short-sighted plan for, you know, political domination. All of that leads us to something that, that we can speak about and which I spoke about recently with Guido Tayeti and then later wrote about in a review of his book, which is the idea that we should be thinking of ways to cause problems for the establishment rather than trying to solve the problems they cause for us. And with regards to the, this recent invasion of Lampedusa, which is co coinciding yet again with another migrant caravan invasion of the United States southern border. And I also just recently saw that there's uh, been some attempt, a, a mass invasion at the Hungarian border. So it's like a three-pronged attack, you know, it's happening all at the same time. And this happens frequently now over the past few years, these, these flare-ups occur. And then, you know, it, it tones back down a bit, but it's still, you know, a constant stream of people. And it's worth asking, you know, how much is the ruling class even aware of what's going on? And are they prepared to sacrifice a functioning society in the name of this, you know, bio-Leninism or community of the vulnerable because they want, you know, non-whites, they want diversity. To quote a labor minister from the Tony Blair years, they want to rub the right's nose in diversity. Let's never forget the malicious intent behind some of this stuff. Sometimes what we see is just pure malice being acted out, policies of malice being manifested into reality. Or, you know, are the ruling class going to have to say, no, no, we want the fourth industrial revolution. So we need to tone back on this, you know, <laughs> emptying of the global south into the global north. Well, there, if that's the case, then there's lots of ground for people like us to cause problems and to highlight the problems that both of these, you know, utopian or I, I would say dystopian visions are pregnant with, you know, they are just pregnant with problems. And so we have to think about, about it in this framework of causing problems rather than trying to solve them, because there is resistance to this. And I've, I've seen some people in the chat even saying, you know, um, that it's the EU's fault and, you know, um, Italy needs to leave the EU. I, I totally agree with that. Here's, here's the quote. It's from uh, Northern Power on DLive. He says, the orders come from the EU. The politicians are lying when they say, quote, we need people to take care of the elderly, unquote. Uh, they want cheap labor. Yeah, well, definitely. There is an EU, an EU element to this. As regarding, with regards to wanting cheap labor, that's actually an Italian thing. Georgia Maloney is also, her and her government are allowing, you know, Italy to be invaded at greater numbers than the opposition, her opposition, you know, the, the left-wing parties that were in charge a year ago. He's also keen on bringing in legal migrants. Her plan, her government's plan is to, over the next couple of years, bring in 425,000 legal migrants to fill in labor gaps. And these legal migrants are specifically chosen to come from outside of the European Union. So they're not even going to be importing workers from fellow European countries or fellow European Union countries, although now the number of European countries who aren't in the EU is quite few indeed. So there's that. And then, of course, we know from experience that these migrant laborers are going to bring their families with them. So rather than 425,000 random people from Africa, the Middle East, and India and Pakistan, probably going to be closer to a million people coming into Italy over the next couple of years. Now, the justification for that is to fill in gaps in the labor market. But really, this decision 
came about, it coincided conveniently after a meeting, a summit that uh, Meloni had with um, business leaders of Italy, including in the uh, hospitality sector and the tourism sector. And they complain that in Italy just can't offer the same kind of wages as other European countries do. In fact, Italy does have the lowest salary to hours worked ratio in Europe. Basically, it's quite transparent what, what this is about. Bringing in loads of poor people from the global south who will work for less money is a way that you know Italian industry keep paying low wages. And so you know, you know, it's not just an EU problem. It's actually individual European nations like Italy are doing this to themselves. I mean, I don't know about that because I, uh, I, I did listen to your stream with Tietti and I believe that he said that Italy had the highest youth unemployment in Europe, or I don't know if it was the highest. But it's quite high. I don't, I don't know if it's the highest, but it's quite yeah. high. Suffice to say, it's quite high. So like to say that they need immigration for gaps in the labor market. It oh, I don't want to, like I'm not, not saying really that they're correct. right. I'm not saying that, 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 yeah. that, that their justification is a correct justification, but that, uh -huh. that is the justification they are giving. Now, okay. Yeah. So, they would so, be cheaper, um, though. The, the foreign labor would be cheaper than, um, you know, training the next generation of Italians and giving Italians uh, a living wage that's better than, you know, 600 to 800 euros a month. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I can see I can see how that might be an element of it, that the business wants the, the cheap labor. But I think I think that it, it is much deeper than that, because ultimately it is bad for the economy, because. Let's be honest, all the guys that you, we see on Lampandusa, uh, how many of them are actually going to be working? I mean, where are they going to be living? You know, exactly. uh, like mm -hmm. to, to take an example from Canada, the biggest, what's quickly becoming the biggest uh, political issue in Canada is cost of living. Now, mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, I haven't been living in Canada for a couple of years now, but from everyone I've spoken to and just from what you hear in the media and stuff, it's just the, uh, and what you hear from what you just hear from people. I, I, I'm now I'm always seeing these videos of like uh, on YouTube of some kind of normie like person saying, well, why I'm leaving Canada, why I uh, why you shouldn't immigrate here. And, and they always mention housing prices. Now, what is causing high housing prices, high demand for housing? What's causing mm -hmm. high demand rise in population? What's causing mm -hmm. Canada's population to rise at an ex <laughs> like at a ridiculously high rate? It's immigration. And same you know, story in Ireland as well. What's mm -hmm. incredible is the horrid Christia Freeland, like the deputy prime minister of Canada, you know, Justin Trudeau, second in command, the one that's always going, the, the, she, she's of Ukrainian descent and she's always talking about Ukraine and uh, about, and about the stuff. What, her talking point was that uh, Canada needs to have more immigrant, more immigration because we need uh, immigrants to build houses uh, to fix the housing crisis. And, I mean, the argument is uh, we need circular. more. Yeah, it, it, the argument is well, we need more of the thing that's causing this problem <laughs> to solve this I saw this that. problem. I, saw I mean, it's ridiculous. But I, you know what that just says to me is that all of these like excuses that they give. I mean, you asked earlier, are they willing to destroy like, a functional society for the purposes of diversity? And I think that that defi the definitive answer to that is yes. I've seen nothing that suggests that they're not absolutely uh, devoted to this stuff. And, you know, I just feel like all of these excuses they give, whether it's, they'll say it's humanitarian, they say that, oh, we need to help these poor 
Africans or we need it for the labor market or whatever excuse they give. I mean, it just seems like they'll lie to your face with whatever way, in whatever way they can and just to justify this. But, you know, you, like I mentioned at the beginning, you see with the Lampedusa situation that you just see the optics of that. And it basically just looks like they're, they just, they're just intent on dumping the so-called global south, south into, uh, into the West. And in terms of you, you asked, like, how can we create problems for creating problems for this system? Because I think it's pretty clear that there isn't really a political way out of this. I mean, I think Italy is, uh, I think Italy pretty much proves that. I mean, I mean, I don't claim to be an expert in Italian politics, but the, the line that was going all around last year is, uh, and they even had one of those clip shows where they clipped the media, like every single different uh, news news source saying the same line, like NBC, uh, Fox, CNN, they're all saying the furthest right government since Mussolini. <laughs> and they've just opened the floodgates. Mm-hmm. So I mm-hmm. to say, you know, clearly, I don't think that a, uh, a political solution through uh, conventional means is really possible. So how can you create problems for this kind of system? I think that we've seen some s- success in this in Ireland, and maybe even in some mm-hmm. certain areas of the UK, there have been these movements to basically dismantle these refugee centers and the, these schemes to dump these huge numbers of refugees into these small Irish towns. So like you see with Lampedusa, you'll, you, there were these schemes that would, uh, there, there'd be this Irish town with about a population of 300 and they're planning on putting about 500 uh, mm-hmm. ref, uh, migrants into this town, ta- into this little Irish town. But a lot of them have actually successfully, well, I mean, I don't know how successfully, uh, haven't been following it too. Uh, They've managed to delay the building of these uh, quote-unquote asylum centers, or they've managed to get the buses to turn back with, you know, they're, they're loaded up with the human cargo and they managed to stand in front of the bus and the bus has to turn back. We don't know where those, that, that human cargo got deposited later, but at least it wasn't uh, deposited in those people's town. So there's, I mean, it's degrees of success. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it succeeded in that it made it more difficult for them to do what they wanted to do. Right. I, I mean, I don't think that's like a, lo- a long-term solution, but it's an it's a, it's, an, it's a an example of something that can be done. But in terms of like what, in terms of like a long-term solution, I really I I, I wish I knew. I wish I knew the answer. To well, that. Martin Sellner, who I think it's a name that most people will be familiar with, he made a a video recently in in the wake of literally literally in the wake of all these uh, migrant boats these ngo boats docking in in Lampedusa and in his video he gave an example of how um i think he was he was either directly or you know through through uh, the universe working in its mysterious ways he was indirectly inspired by you know Guido Tedi and he was talking about how to cause problems and also he was talking about the difference between on the ground activism and sort of parliamentary activism, where you think that if we just get the right people in parliament, then you know we've done enough. No, no, we have to actually get our hands dirty, or in this case, our hands wet. Because his idea was that, well, if the Italian government isn't going to implement the blocco navale, which is a naval blockade, which is what Georgia Maloney promised she would do to fight these NGOs, was use the Navy and to set up a blockade in the Mediterranean. Um, Well, she hasn't delivered on that promise. And so rather than demanding this naval blockade, 
what the local fishermen or any men you know who own a boat in Lampedusa or near Lampedusa, well, they should just do the naval blockade themselves. And in that way, cause a problem, not only for the NGOs who are trying to ride, but it also, talking about optics, it will put the Italian government and the EU, by extension, in a very interesting position, a very tricky position, because I suspect that the Italian Navy would then actually hit the waters in response to those fishermen blocking NGO boats. And so the Navy that was promised to be set upon these you know, NGOs, which are foreign, they come from Germany, they come from the United States, they come from Spain. And so you know, Italy has every right to refuse entry to foreign NGOs. But rather than fulfilling that promise of using the Navy to prevent them, now you're going to actually, you could see the Navy being used on Italians trying to prevent this, which would just be another optical nightmare. And I, I suspect that that would happen because uh, talking about, you know, how much of this is a united ruling class dream, vision, and is there resistance to it? Are there, are there some who are going to have to let go of one of their, you know, utopias, whether it's the Agenda 2030 or it's the diversity at, you know, infinite diversity? Because there is pushback to this, but it gets quashed very effectively and very quickly. And Douglas Murray wrote about this in The Spectator just a few days ago, I think yesterday. And I wanted to read a little bit of it. Now, again, don't worry about the messenger. My opinion on Douglas Murray has soured over the years. Um, I thought his book, The Strange Death of Europe, was full of some very useful information, but not a lot of solutions. And then later on in the, you know, in the interviews that Murray gave about this book, especially his conversations with Jordan Peterson and, and the like, it became clear that Murray was actually staunchly opposed to the only solution, really, which is European ethnocentrism and taking our own side and embracing the power of saying no to all these migrants. He didn't like that. And so he's become quite, you know, a conservative cuck, whatever you want to call it. Same with Jordan Peterson and all the rest of them. However, like in his book, The Strange Death of Europe, and again, that title, you know, it's so strange. Oh, it's What's happening? <laughs> it's, it's quite clear what's going on. It's not very strange at all. You know, what, what's going on is we are being uh, overrun by foreigners. But like in that book, in this article he's just written, there's a lot of interesting facts. And so he writes about a third into the new article. He's talking about how he's, you know, he's written, he went to Lampedusa in 2015. Nothing has changed. In fact, if anything has changed, it's been for the worse. So he says, perhaps it's time to add a further chapter to my already dire prognosis. Europeans will vote for politicians who want to stop the migration. Those politicians may even come into office, but the situation will not change. How can this be? At this stage, the online know-it-alls will complain, or will, will claim rather, that Maloney has been bought and become a shill. They will claim that she has sold out and become a puppet of the EU. These explanations, such as they are, are ridiculously comforting as well as wrong. The reality is infinitely worse. 
let me throw out two names that explain why. So then he goes on to de describe something that happened that I've mentioned several times uh, regarding Matteo Salvini. So he talked about how Salvini was the deputy prime minister and he was the interior minister and he did a great deal to stop the flows. Specifically, he refused to allow boats to land. Various open borders, NGOs and others have been testing Italian law for years. Salvini worked out that if you said the illegal boats couldn't dock, then the flow might stop or at least slow down. In the years since, Salvini has faced repeated attempts to prosecute him for this quote-unquote crime. In 2021, he was dragged through the Italian courts on a charge of kidnapping migrants. The kidnapping being not allowing illegal migrants to land in Italy. When that case fell apart, the Italian Senate, of which Salvini was a part, voted for a new trial to take place. Once again, he was charged with kidnapping for blocking the arrival of the NGO open arms ship. And then, so that's an example of how the Italian people and, and people all over the United States or in other European countries, they will do the parliamentary activism that Selner talks about, and they will get who they want in office. And even sometimes who they want will do what they said they would do, in this case, Salvini. So Salvini was cited as an example of being one of these you know, politicians who tried to do the right thing and tried to do what he promised to do, and he, he did. And then he was put through this ringer of accusations and trials. And then I, it is worth mentioning how Douglas concludes his article, because he writes about this Danish politician by the name of Inger Stoiberg, who is another example of a European leader, a European politician who was doing the task that she was elected to do and fulfilling her promises and then paying the price for it. Um, now, I won't reread all of it. It's a couple of paragraphs. But um, to, to cut it short, then, basically, Douglas Murray says that uh, she is, in effect, one of the reasons why Denmark is relatively peaceful and has not become you know, a third world war zone like Sweden, because this woman, Stoiberg, made it very clear that Denmark was not going to be a destination for welfare scammers and, you know, the world's detritus to just show up and, you know, start wreaking havoc. And she did that by implementing all sorts of policies and all sorts of laws, some of which only had to be implemented a few times, and that was enough to send a very clear signal. However, what happened was that, and here I'll quote just a few lines from the article then, Stoichberg's opponents said that this went against the, the European Convention on Human Rights and the Convention on the Rights of the Child. And so in 2021, the Danish parliament, including her own party, voted to impeach and try Stoichberg for her quote-unquote crime. She was sentenced to 60 days in prison and ended up wearing an ankle bracelet in order not to actually spend any time in jail. So, and this is Douglas Murray's final paragraph. So when people ask why our politicians are unable to do the right thing, this is one of the reasons. Because if you allow laws to be broken, then nothing will happen to you. You will serve your retirement in peace. But try to defend the laws and the peoples of Europe, and you will be hounded. During our continent's strange death, only doing what is right is punished. 
Yeah. There's a lot more to power than simply being in office because what, what the system seems to be able to do is that when one, someone in power steps out of line, another, another uh, node will come in and then correct their wrong. It looks like, well, you know, maybe, uh, maybe make wrong the thing that they did right. So for example, you know, like the, there's the, there's the courts, there's the other political parties, there are the NGOs and the media, the corporations are all seem to be working in tandem basically facilitate this kind of destruction. So when one, when one element steps out of line, the other elements come in and punish it. Right. And, you know, it's, I, I thought that was a, it was a worthwhile article. Uh, it was worth sharing, uh, despite, you know, Douglas Murray's flaws. Um, because I, I do see that a lot that, you know, um, people will say, that this politician is bought or is a shill or, you know, look, she had a picture with the Israeli flag and that kind of thing. And I, I totally sympathize with it. I, I wouldn't go so hard as Murray did in his article saying, you know, it's uh, ridiculous, comforting lies uh, or, you know, online know-it-alls, etc. No, I think that there's legitimate reasons to suggest that some of these politicians are either you know, very Machiavellian and just saying the right things to get elected by a desperate population. Or once they get into power, you know, they are taken under the wing of some nefarious players. You know, I think Maloney comes from the Aspen Institute. She's a daughter of the Aspen Institute. She rubs shoulders with Tony Blair. There wasn't, there really wasn't much reason to put a lot of hope in her anyway. And there's plenty of reason to suspect that the people she rubs shoulders with have taken her to the side and said, look, if you want to, if you want to be invited to fancy dinners in French palaces, <laughs> you've got to play by our rules. So welcome well, to, you know, the, welcome to the club of, you know, prime ministers now fall in line. Yeah. I mean, what I would say to push back on Douglas Murray is that what he's saying is probably true that, you know, he, someone like Salvini would have been pu punished for doing the right thing. Same with that woman in Denmark. I mean, that doesn't make me respect someone like Giorgia Maloney anymore. I still consider her to be like a traitor and basically scum because, mm -hmm. you, you know, when, like when you consider that, like how many men have died to defend Europe throughout the throughout the millennia. And then like the thing that gets you to sell out your own people is that, you know, you, you might get you might get a court date or something like that. I mean, mm -hmm. they're not they're mm -hmm. not going to be lined up against the wall and shot, at least not yet, mm -hmm. but. The idea that, that like that is what breaks them. It, it well, I mean, mm -hmm. it just goes to show it, it's a it's a symbol. It's a it's a sign of the cowardice of our time because so much of of the problem that we're in today it's 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 because of cowardice because people were too Absolutely. cowardly to do the right thing. That yeah. um, you know, like it was it, it wasn't even that you're gonna like actually face any real consequences. Like someone who I admire, like Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he spent eight years in the gulag. And then was later exiled for his, from his country for decades to do, to do what he believed was right. And then these politicians like Georgia Maloney, oh, they might, they might get like the European uh, Court of Human Rights or something might uh, come after them with these trumped up charges. And then maybe they get an ankle bracelet or something like that. If that's what, it, if that's what you give in, if that's what gets you to give in, well, you know, you're no better than mm -hmm. the people that are facilitating the system. Well said. I, I absolutely agree. Um, so let's uh, take a moment to look at some uh, questions.